0: hello and welcome to kerrang back issues i'm your host stephen this week we'll be looking at issue number what number is it <laughs> 572 Kerrang used to put the number on the cover and now i have to either have it written down or flip on the inside ridiculous ridiculous new layout kerrang ridiculous yes it's three weeks later and i'm still moaning about the layout this week we're looking at issue number 572 november the 18th 1995 one pounds and 50 pence every wednesday the cover stars for the issue of Kerrang that we're looking at this week are the Smashing Pumpkins. The band that fell to earth, Smashing Pumpkins. Corgan Space Cadets, Take On the World. Also, in this week's Kerrang, save £6 on Aussie, Corn, and Cubanate LPs. Bon Jovi exclusive UK tour dates. Live, Iron Maiden, Skid Row, and Life of Agony. Four posters, Foo Fighters, Death Leopard, Honeycrack, Sepultura. White Zombie, Go Shopping for Human Bones. And Alice in Chains, Why Are These Men in Drag? When you're listening to this um, episode of the podcast I won't be in the country. I will be sunning myself somewhere very hot because I absolutely deserve it. So what I've had to do is uh, this week when I'm recording I've actually recorded three podcasts this week which I'll be honest it's been a bit of a chore. I do love doing this podcast I do. When it's on a weekly cadence, um, it's it's great. I, I do really enjoy it. But doing three in a week, my god, it's it's a bit much. But you know what? Um, I put everything into doing these episodes. I don't scrimp. I love it. I do still love it. I know I'm moaning. I'm only moaning because I'm sat here, uh, and it's a very very grim day outside, which obviously cannot not feed into your mood. So hopefully, talking to you all, uh, talking to myself in this room, I'll um. Pop myself out of this uh, mood and be excited for my holidays, and also excited to get this last podcast out of the three that I've had to do. Uh, it does sound like I don't enjoy doing this podcast. I love it, absolutely love it. I love, I love reading about these bands. I still do. I still get, I still get really excited about discovering albums that I never listened to at that um, point. Uh, you know, 1995. I was 14. I didn't have expendable income, so I couldn't buy every record. So, you know, going back and, and listening to some of these albums, I'm 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 really loving it still. I'm I'm discovering so much, so much good music. And let's be honest, a lot of music in 2022 is kind of rubbish. And when you're my age, which is in your forties, I I do love I do love nostalgia. I can't help it. The 90s were the greatest era of music. I'll stand on that hill, <laughs> I'll die on that hill, for the rest of my life. I don't think any era of music will ever come close to every genre that was spawned in the 90s. It was the best, no arguments. Actually, I'd love to have an argument. So if you wanna, if you wanna send me an email or send me a message on Instagram or Twitter, let's do that, let's have a chat. I'd love to hear from you people out there why, why in the 90s isn't the best era and what era is the best. I think we could have a really good chat about this. Speaking of which, if you do want to get in contact with me, not just necessarily to talk about whether the 90s was the best era, if you just want to chat about anything to do with rock, um, then you can find us on Instagram, Back Issues, Twitter, KerangPod, or email, kerrangbackissues at gmail.com. I've got to say, Instagram is a really fun place to be. I um, do post up some adverts and some, some other stuff that I find in the Kerangs, um, out that week usually really good stuff i mean the other week i posted up a therapy picture which therapy themselves uh, on their instagram page uh, reposted i got a load of uh, a of comments for that one it's really you know it's, it's it's really fun it's really um it's really nice to share this with so many people because you know there are a lot of us out there there definitely are a lot of us out there of this age maybe a bit younger maybe a little bit older we all grew up reading Karang. i mean I'll still never forget how excited I was every Wednesday picking up Kerrang and just seeing what was going on. Uh, you know, really, really great. Speaking of Kerrang, let's get on with this week's issue of the magazine. So, as I mentioned last week, there is no more um, word from the editor, but we, what we do have is that the issue has been created with the following stimulants. So, let's read those. This issue was created with the following stimulants. A pump-action plastic shotgun, a glove puppet horse with protruding teeth, several cups of strong coffee courtesy of Aussie kitchen dweller Mark, a packet of 80-year-old Russian fags, an orange squeezy stress ball, stomach-churning yoghurt-coated peanuts, Vera and Jack Duckworth on the box, the leftovers from the mysterious stash found at Sir Cliff Richard's Holiday Home. Just before we begin this week's issue, I just wanted to make mention that this week's Kerrang! in 95 came with a scratch card. Now, I do not remember these scratch cards at all, but apparently the prizes were an Aowa MIDI system, a Wild Hearts rare CD, an ACDC book, a whole T-shirt, a guitar and amplifier, a leather jacket, British night shoes, or classic James Bond videos. So very much um, (laughs) uh, prizes of the time. I mean, that MIDI system, it's apparently, it says it's worth 500 quid. It looks like the MIDI system that every single person owned, that everyone probably got from Argos for Christmas. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Bad Starting this week with news. Alice in Chains guitarist Jerry Cantrell has dressed in drag for a remarkable new video film for the launch of the band's self-titled new album. The 15-minute film was premiered to a select media gathering in London last week, billed as A Day in the Life of Jerry Cantrell, Layne Staley, Sean Kinney and Mike Inez, the film which promises to show the Seattle quartet as you've never seen them before, effectively sets out to rid the band of their perennially po-faced image. A Day in the Life takes a tongue-in-cheek swipe at persistent rumours that Alice in Chains have been on the verge of breaking up for the past two years. Filmed in documentary style, the four members of the band are interviewed by a mysterious woman named Nona Weissbaum. In the film, Cantrell claims to have retired from the music business and is filmed Shoveling Manure on a Farm. Drummer Sean Kinney insists he has become a children's entertainer and appears dressed up as a clown, while bassist Mike Inez informs the cameras that he has started his own business before revealing his newly acquired hot dog stand. Elsewhere, Alison Chains' new album has been banned in Japan after music industry chiefs took offense to the picture of a three-legged dog on the sleeve. Apparently, in Japan it is illegal to use pictures of disabled people or animals for commercial purposes. The band have refused to change the cover and consequently the LP is only on sale in a few stores on import. More furor may follow if the nation's MTV chiefs decide to screen the video to the band's new single, Grind, in which the dog, named Sunshine, is filmed hobbling up some steps. The UK CD version of the single was mispressed and features an incorrect track listing. The band's record company Columbia have issued an apology, blaming the error on an administration muddle at the UK pressing plant. The sleeve credits the second track as so close, the displays then Bones." Also, tracks 3 and 4 play in the opposite order to the credits. As the single was only available for one week, Columbia say corrected reruns are not possible. The Wild Hearts have urged their fans not to buy the version of the Fishing for Lucky's mini album which is being re-released by East West on November 20th. Ginger told the crowd at their London Brixton Academy show on November 3rd, We've got a new record coming out and it's fucking shit. Don't buy it. You already own it. It's got three shitty extra tracks on it, which we don't endorse in any way. He then led the audience in a chant of Fuck East West. Ginger used the same speech every day on the band's recent UK tour. The new version of fishing for luckies adds three previously unavailable tracks to the original six track running order these are underkill the fourth b-side the wild hearts recorded with guitarist mark Head for the justin lust single saddened a minute and a half orchestral piece and the demo version of i want to go where the people go the wild hearts claim that they wanted to record some brand new material specifically for the release but they were not allowed to do so by east west the band's highly troubled relationship with their record label is apparently set to come to a head within the next few weeks The Wild Hearts are still maintaining that they will split up if they're unable to get out of their contract with East West. An official announcement is expected in the near future. Faith No More put an end to all the speculation about their future when they played a special Halloween show in New York. The band, who cancelled their planned UK tour earlier in the year and have since been dogged by rumours that they were set to split, headlined local New York radio station Q104.3's Monster Masquerade at Irving Plaza. The bill also featured Monster Magnet and HUM. According to Onlookers, Faith No More delivered a sharp and focused set to an audience clad in fancy dress. The band have since returned to San Francisco to continue work on their new studio album. Frontman Mike Patton's sideband Mr Bungle have just released their second album Disco Volante in the US. It will appear in the UK through Slash London on January the 15th. Offspring will re-release their self-titled first album through frontman Dexter Hollands Nitro Records label on November 21st. The album has been deleted for several years but the band were besieged by fans asking them to sign poor quality bootlegs of it on their last tour. This has prompted them to make the official version, which was produced by Tom Wilson who has worked with the band ever since available. Offspring was originally released on vinyl only in 1989. It sold a mere 3,000 copies which have now become collector's items. The band is set to begin work on their follow-up to the 6 million selling smash in the new year. It is scheduled for a Spring 1996 release. Bon Jovi, Green Day, Offspring, Therapy, Dog Eat Dog, Alanis Morissette and Weezer have all been nominated for awards at this year's European MTV Awards, which will take place in Paris on November 23rd. Bon Jovi, Green Day, Offspring and Therapy will compete for the Best Rock Band category with Oasis. Bon Jovi have also been nominated for Best Group and Best Live Act. Fittingly, the New Jersey superstars will be performing at the event. Offspring have also been nominated in the Best Song category for self esteem. Doggy Dog Weezer Alanis Morissette and German rap metalers H Blocks have been nominated in the Breakthrough Artist category. The nominations for the awards are compiled by 700 key figures from the European music industry, then reduced to five per category by MTV Europe's audience. Comments Doggy Dog bassist Dave Nierbaugh I have a feeling we're going to win. You can vote for the favourite band yourself via phone on 0990 200 580, fax on 017 1482 6984 or by post to MTV Europe PO Box 1384 London NW1 8UH UK. Slayer have run into trouble with British censors over their first ever home movie, Live Intrusion, in the same week that they have piped company with drummer Paul Bostaff. The video was initially scheduled for release on Halloween, But the opening scene, which shows a fan cutting the band's logo into his arm, has led to problems in it obtaining the expected 15 certificate. It now seems likely that Live Intrusion will receive the more restrictive 18 certificate. The delay has meant that it will now appear at an as-yet unspecified date later this month. Live Intrusion was recorded throughout Slayer's last US tour and features a mixture of live and fly-on-the-wall footage. The LA Thrash Legends also announced this week that Bostaff had left the band. Bostaff replaced the band's original drummer Dave Lombardo two years ago. Slayer have yet to explain the reason for Bostaff's departure and reveal it, um, if they will recruit a full-time replacement. Slayer are currently working on an album of hardcore punk covers, selected and exhumed, which will be released for American recordings early in a new year. Sepultura have spent two days in the depths of the Amazonian jungle where they recorded a track for the upcoming album Roots with the mysterious a Zavante tribe. The band were determined to use native Brazilian musicians on the record in order to reflect another aspect of their homeland. The Zavante tribe live in the rainforest and exist solely on their natural resources, which have been increasingly threatened with destruction in modern times. Sepultura flew into the heart of the jungle, which is regarded as one of the most savage and untamed parts of the world, two weeks ago accompanied by a translator, recording the track a day later before flying straight back to Sao Paulo. Shelter singer Ray Capo has attacked bands who promote the sex, drugs and rock and roll lifestyle in their lyrics. Bands get fans who reflect what they write about in their lyrics, he insists. If all you concern yourself with is having a good time, then you'll attract people with that attitude. But that sort of cock rock thing really is just the blind leading the blind. Capo maintains that Shelter, who all follow the Krishna religion, set a more positive example. We rarely encounter any of that sex and drugs thing. The fans who come backstage just want to hug us and thank us for the message of hope we give them. The most difficult thing we face on the road is the boredom, but we get through that by chanting, praying and holding religious classes. I also get out my portable stove and cook a f- stew using vegetables and rice for everyone. Shelter released a new single here we go on November 20th. Ozzy Osbourne was asked to repay the £10 he'd allegedly borrowed from a school friend decades ago on Channel 4's The Big Breakfast Show last week. Ozzy appeared on the show with his wife Sharon, his three children and his dog Baldrick on November 7th. Whilst on there, he received the facts from a man who said he knew his boyhood friend Tiny Hudson. The facts stated that Hudson was still waiting for Ozzy to return the 10 quid he claimed he'd lent him whilst the pair were at school. The producers of The Big Breakfast have since passed on Hudson's phone number to Osborne although it's not known as yet whether he's actually had to return any money. Whilst he was on air, Ozzy also asked the show's two glove puppets uh, Zig and Zag to audition for his band, revealed that there was now no chance of a reunion of the original Black Sabbath lineup, and tried and failed to mate Baldrick with a fluffy toy called Fifi. American news, starting this week with Don Kay in New York. Halloween week brought out a double dose of kiss nostalgia. On October 31st, the already legendary unplugged taping aired on MTV, featuring a brief performance from the band's original lineup Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, Ace Freely, Peter Chris. The broadcast omitted several numbers, including Freely's lead vocal on 2000 Man, but otherwise captured the magic that all of us who were there when it was recorded experienced. One major flaw though was airing three ballads, I Still Love You, Every Time I Look At You and Beth, consecutively, which nearly destroyed the pacing. Sadly, we hear that disagreements between Kiss and MTV over financial matters may prevent the release of an unplugged album and video. Come on guys, stop bickering and think about the fans. Meanwhile, Freely and Chris rolled into town Builders as the Bad Boys Tour. Peter's mostly inept set wasn't helped by a cheesy bar band backup group, while Ace is touring with his tightest unit yet. Peter, of course, offered up Beth, while Ace did a medley of his solo stuff and a healthy dose of Kiss classics including Watching You, Rocket Ride, Shock Me and Cold Gin. Peter joined Ace's band for Juice and a stunning take on Strange Ways, which Ace wrote and Peter sang way back on the Hotter Than Hell album. We mentioned Type & Negative's Halloween gig last week but failed to mention that three of the original Misfits joined Pete Steele's crew on stage for a five-song finale that was equal parts rousing and disastrous. Problem is, no one really knows who the Misfits are without their original singer Glenn Danzig. In fact, the band actually wore Misfits t-shirts on stage to identify themselves. Meanwhile, huge congratulations are in order to type a negative and their label Roadrunner. The band's Bloody Kisses album has gone gold in the US for sales of 500,000 copies. A first for both the group and the record company. Shocking news emerged from the New York offices of Columbia Records last week. The label have refused to release the new Carcass album in the US. This marks the final separation between Columbia and the UK's noted indie label Earache, who signed a distribution deal with the major a couple of years back and watched it wither away as one earache release after another failed to match Columbia's commercial expectations. However, encouraging sales of Carcass's last album Heartwork seemed to boost their standing as the one earache act that Columbia would still back. In fact, the band was signed direct to the major label as a result. Now, the all traces of the company's support have vanished. Next up we have Lisa Johnson in LA. Pearl Jam picked Eddie Vedder's old hometown, San Diego, California, as the final date on their itinerary of makeup dates from last summer's cancelled tour. This time around the Ramones, Eddie and guitarist Mike McCready, our huge fans, were supporting. Pearl Jam's San Diego rain brought down the house for two sold-out shows on the sports arena with the second show being broadcast over local radio station 91X. We are ready to thank for that, a DJ said earlier in the day. Nearing the close of the show, an affable Vedder addressed the crowd. I didn't have this many friends when I lived here, so it's nice to have them now. The two-hour concert was followed by Monkey Wrench Radio, Pearl Jam's pirate radio which broadcast live from backstage on 90.7 FM. Much of the time, Veda was on air, spinning discs, chatting with whoever stopped by, Joey, Ramone, old friends, etc., a sample of music included way old punk, nifty new bands, spoken word, obscure tracks like schizo genius Wesley Willis doing Casper the homosexual friendly ghost. If you're interested in the odd, then sell your firstborn for a copy of one of Willis's albums. He has a greatest hits collection currently available on Alternative tentacles. Monkey Wrench Radio is a lot like hanging out with friends and playing records for hours. And damn, it's the best radio show I've heard in a long time. Where else would Joey Ramone give out his email address, gaba1234 at aol.com, or be the first to learn that Pearl Jam have been officially asked to be on The Simpsons. I can't really see myself as a cartoon character, Vedi said. The San Diego concert ended on an ultra positive note. As Veda bid the crown adieu, he said casually, see you next year. Meanwhile, the multimedia mind trip extravaganza that is Hovercraft, the trio featuring Veda on drums and his wife Beth on bass, will be touring the US with a Jim Rose Circus later this month. We now join Kevin Roberts in Seattle. Kurt Cobain's paintings and sculpture have been put on display to great acclaim by his widow Courtney Love at the couple's Seattle home. Museum creators and art gallery owners were invited to a private viewing and many have expressed interest in putting them on display at a later date. All the work is said to depict distorted pale figures which resemble humans tied up as puppets. Love is believed to have originally offered to donate all the pieces to a museum but is now expected that to loan them for 30 years so the couple's daughter Frances Bean can claim them at a later date. By a bizarre coincidence, Pearl Jam's recent Salt Lake City show just happened to coincide with Seattle basketball team the Supersonics' first game of the season against Salt Lake's Utah Jazz. The band are well-documented hoop fans, especially bassist Jeff Ament, who can regularly be spotted at Sonics games. He also lists the NBA's most famous bad boy Dennis Rodman, noted for his tattoos, body piercings and fling with Madonna, among his friends. A man interviewed Rodman for US magazine uh, Slam Dunk and challenged him to a game of one-on-one and lost 11-7. On location, this week Lisa Johnson goes shopping in LA with white zombie bassist Shauna Uzel. Here's the idea, we give white zombie bassist Shawnee Uzel $100 and let her loose on a shopping spree in LA's legendary Melrose Avenue. Here's how it went. At 2pm the journey begins with a crisp $100 bill that Shauna can spend any way she likes, as long as she buys some stuff for Kerrang! to give away as a competition prize. Shauna leads us to the hotspots of LA's fashion where a little bit of money goes a long way. First stop is Jetrag and its ultra-fabulous thrifty cheapo clothes. Shauna scores with 5 items, 4 shirts and some devil horns which clock in at $28.75. These are mainly presents for other people. The horns though are 6 bucks, are for Shauna. The most money I've ever spent on haunchy notes, but they're shiny. We skip La Brea Circus where you can buy cheap imported olives for martinis, but it's usually a must-do on any budget. Another 25 cents goes on a parking meter, then Shauna blows $2.14 for two cokes at a Mexican restaurant. Where now, Shauna? We're going to click-click-bang inside the black market on Melrose. This is where Shauna picks out a bunch of prizes for Kareng. Shauna buys herself a powder blue suede jacket. How long have you had your eye on that jacket? About five months. In the fiendish and very gothic necromancer store, I want to get a human rib. Out of all my bones, I don't have any human bones yet. I'll start my human collection with a rib. Shauna finds herself enchanted by a mouse skeleton. She then finds a human rib with the identification mark 66 written on it. Why'd you like that one? It's only one short of being Satan. That's good enough for me. How much do you have left? I have $7. Heading towards the next destination, Shauna starts to mention how cool the Elvis shirt she bought for Kerrang is and how much she likes it. Maybe I'll keep it. I don't think so, Shauna. We already did the photo. Soup plant boasts an eclectic array of books, soaps, jewelry, knickknacks, candles, bath products, gift items, etc. $3.79 by Shauna a candle and 10 martini olive spears with mermaids. 10 for a dollar, beam Shauna. You can't go wrong. Then she spotted double rainbow ice cream. There's only $3.21 left. We'll have to see if that gets us a couple of scoops. $2.95 for a scoop of pumpkin and a cup of coffee. I came out with change left over. What's left? 29 cents left. It's 6pm, we're exhausted from shopping and it's time to go home. As Shauna gets out of the car, she realises she's become like seriously attached to the reader gift she's picked out. You know, I really want to keep that Elvis shirt, she says, as she disappears off into the night. No way, Shauna, no way. So I've already recorded this and committed it to tape, but I'm just going to go out on a limb here and apologise and say I'm sorry for including that in the podcast this week. What an absolute load of crap that article was. I will try better next time i'll try and forward read everything i put in i can't do that every time because obviously i just don't have enough time especially this week when i'm doing free podcasts so sorry about that and sorry including on location because that was an absolute load of crap and if you enjoyed it hooray for you well done uh let's move on to lives Viva, (laughs) you've never been to a concert in your life shut up Lives, and the first concert reviewed this week is Skid Row, supported by Send No Flowers at the Apollo Manchester on Tuesday, October 31st. Reviewed by Paul Travers, this one gets a four out of five. On first hearing, Send No Flowers seem to rest somewhere between Stone Temple Pilots and Soundgarden. They've a muscular and flexible sound and some good songs, but precious little charisma or stage presence with which to back them up. Fine on record, but live, they're neither exciting or sexy. One thing you could never accuse Skid Row of is a deficit of stage presence. They sprint on and before you know it, they've powered halfway through subhuman race. Sebastian back throwing himself about like a mutant stick insect in very short shorts. Piece of Me follows and they attack it with such conviction that it's easy to overlook the preposterous posturings and lyrics of the first LP. Live, Skid Row are all about energy, and the new material translates a lot better to this medium. They might have largely forsaken the Godzilla-sized choruses of before, but the sheer momentum and aggression of tracks like Beat Yourself Blind more than make up for it. Rachel Bolan, looking like Mike Patton from Where We're Standing, takes the mic for a ragged blast through the Ramones' psychotherapy, then for some reason gives us a solo rendition of Kiss's God of Thunder on bass. Eventually, he's rejoined by the rest of the band, and as the opening chords to 18 and Life are picked out, the audience cheers are deafening. Some dodgy lead playing can't detract from the simplistic power of the song, and it also becomes particularly apparent just how far back has come as a vocalist. He's always been the consummate frontman and performer, but now the range and strength of his vocals are just as impressive. You won't see many performers enjoying themselves more on stage, and it's a long time since we've heard anyone say, Hello Manchester, in that rock star way, or tell us that we're louder than the crowd at fucking Wembley. It's cringeworthy at times, but it's a mutual love fest. Seb loves the crowd, and the crowd love him. It's also refreshing. Skidrow haven't bowed to trends and may be considered unfashionable, but Subhuman Race debuted at number 8 in the UK charts, and the Apollo is full of people whose only concern is to have a good time. Why should they need an alternative to that? Next up we have Life of Agony, supported by Above All at the Highbury Garage, London on Sunday, October 29th. Reviewed by Paul Brannigan, he gave this a four out of five. Above all, vocalist Tony Maddox informs us that they're from Southend, England, via Brooklyn, USA, obviously, judging by their sound and stage mannerisms. Musically, the band are taut and aggressive, but with the lyrics being delivered in staccato three-word blasts, the songs sometimes come across as a touch repetitive. Tunes like Blood of Ages and Empire would benefit greatly from a more varied approach to phrasing. Still, there's enough energy and hunger emanating from the stage to make the forthcoming Alex Newport produced debut album one to look out for. We don't want to sound like dicks but we'd ask you not to get on stage while we're playing in case someone gets hurt. Mina Caputo's opening stage pronouncement says a lot about Life of Agony. They may be blunt and pissed off but they're also thoughtful, sensitive and free of the chest-beating macho histronics which Dog much New York hardcore. Tonight, the Brooklyn Quartet are in inspired form. Mina Kabuto is Life of Agony's trump card. Their low-key presence in stark contrast to a voice which resonates with power, clarity and emotion. It is their impassioned vocals which lift the harsh grind of Damned If I Do and Lost at 22, way above the hardcore norm. On new album Ugly, they're the patron saint of The maladjusted and Misunderstood, a confused outsider struggling for self-belief as door after door slams in their face. It's a compelling exorcism of personal demons. There's a cool, rolling groove to Life of Agony's songs. Fluid, undulating rhythms overlaid with the crisp, biting tones of Joey Z's guitar. The rhythm section's ability to switch instantly from full-on bludgeon to light-fingered melodic embellishments is a great asset, as they steer the dark, emotional roller coasters that are seasoned and river runs red through flurries of flailing power chords. There was a real sense of anticipation tonight before Life of Agony took the stage, and the Brooklyn boys, disappointed no one. Life is sweet. Next we have Iron Maiden supported by My Dying Bride at the Civic Hall Wolverhampton on Saturday November the 4th. Reviewed by Steve Beebe, this one gets a 4 out of 5. You could take Iron Maiden to the credibility court and throw the book at them. But to what end? Iron Maiden are a British institution and rightly so. Tonight it's their first UK gig for two years and also their homeland debut with new singer Blaze Bailey. It's a milestone performance. The X Factor album, their uneasy rebirth may have prompted some premature epitaphs. The apocalyptic aggression and theatricality of their live set is as convincing as ever. Demonic Tamworth Terrier Bailey may well have won Heavy Metal's lottery jackpot, but only the greedy could say that he hasn't deserved it. Tonight he is under the most incredible pressure any frontman has ever faced. Tonight Blaze Bailey absolutely must deliver. A nervous ball of crackling static, Bailey appears before his bandmates arms waving, head thrusting back and forth before a single note is struck. Man on the Edge is the opener, a frenzied cacophony as Bailey thrashes and stomps all traditional maiden traits slot into gear with a pleasing familiarity. You've got Janet Gears scaling the speaker stacks, Dave Murray and Steve Harris with feet on monitors, instruments tipped towards the audience, heads bobbing in unison and there's Nico McBrain who is still a malicious beat machine and still has a very peculiar nose. Heaven can wait is an old friend. Gears astonishingly shaking hands with a fan in the middle of his guitar solo. Fear of the Dark is another cause for audience hysteria. When Gears and Murray power in after the hushed intro, there is a scene straight from 1985 as a few thousand denim clad arms punch the air and air guitars lurch in fraternity. Seven new songs, however, is clearly too many. The Afterlife and Sign of the Cross take on fresh inspiration in the live arena, but others like Fortunes of War and the Coppola Comrade inspired Heart of Darkness remain just as ponderous as they are on record. It's the band's commitment to their performance and Bailey's determination that see them through. There's no running free or run to the hills, but the phenomenal triple encore of Number of the Beast, Hallowed Be Thy Name, and the Trooper seal a classy, adrenalised victory for Maiden's latest attack. Earlier, Bradford Doombringers My Dying Bride played a short but politely received set. Their doomy music is cleverly orchestrated and occasionally intense but they are still an unknown quantity this side of the channel. They make Paradise Lost look like Katrina and the waves, but will remain an acquired taste. Next, we have The Prodigy, live at the Island Ilford on Saturday, October 28th. Uh, this one is reviewed by Morat, and this one gets five out of five. Small caveat here from me, your uh, dear narrator. <laughs> um, I grew up in Ilford uh, when I was a kid, and. I've been to the island a few times. That venue was fantastic. I saw Feeder there a couple of times. Um, before they were big, actually, I think it was around the time either Polythene was just about to be released, or it had been released, and I met them all, and they were lovely, actually, um, including John, the, the drummer who sadly passed away a few years later. I was also on the video for Filmstar by Suede, so I remember, God, I must have been about 15 or 16, and... My dad was listening to Radio 1 and they said, if anyone is in the Ilford area, get down to the island this afternoon because Suede are filming a video and they need a big crowd. So I phoned a couple of friends and no one wanted to go, so I went on my own and, um, yeah, saw Suede for free and got on their video. So that was nice. Anyway, you're not here to hear about my nostalgia. You're here for some proper nostalgia, kerrang nostalgia. So let's uh, get on with the review. Drop, if you will for a moment, all those daft musical prejudices and labels and imagine a band so loud that the bass shakes a layer of dust down from the ceiling. Imagine if this band had guitar riffs you could beat your granny to death with and they could get absolutely everyone in the audience dancing like their boots are on fire. Believe it or not, you are imagining the prodigy. Take those blinkers off for a second, like the kids in the L7, No Effects Faith No More Lard etc t-shirts have and you'll see the almighty Headswim. swim and Noisy Mother's Man Crusher all getting on down in the capacity crowd. There are moments tonight when the prodigy could scare Satan, dancers Leroy and Keith are clearly possessed by something they'd give even old Nick the willies, and just try looking a frontman Maxim reality in the face during the mighty voodoo people. The only disappointment this evening is not that there are some tracks with no guitar, guitarist Jim is being let loose more and more on new material, but that they didn't play out of space, and even worse that this gig couldn't just keep going forever. A few years back, there was debate as to whether Karen should write about grunge or not. We did, and the world didn't blow up. The Prodigy won't blow the world up either, but they will definitely blow your mind. Bet you didn't even know they had a guitarist. Next up, in Karen's weekly mention of Bon Jovi, we have Bon Jovi, supported by ANSIA, live at Palacio de los Deportes, Mexico City, on Saturday, October 21st, and Sunday, October 22nd. Reviewed by Jason Arnott, This one gets 5 out of 5. Bon Jovi's Mexican support band on their first dates after a week-long break are shocking. Anzia's singer looks ludicrous in a red boiler suit and his voice jars horribly. The drummer sounds like he's building a shed. There is no point in patronising them. From the very second Bon Jovi stroll onto the stage, 20,000 people are completely wrapped. Fuck, this show is a month's wages down the chute. Let's make the most of it. People want to say that every last note, at least half of them have cigarette lighters too, making for a spectacular canopy of fake stars. Arena heaven is effortlessly achieved, hanging video screen and all, never mind the fact that bassist Hugh McDonald looks misplaced and practically has session player tattooed on his forehead. Sunday is the stronger of the two nights, and strangely it's a night when John Bon Jovi is unwell. He's been throwing up for the last couple of hours, yet as soon as the band clunk into the cover of Neil Young's Rockin' in the Free World, he's the Duracell Bunny incarnate. On Saturday, they play The Beatles' Hell a Up as the opener, but Free World is much more effective and up-tempo. The first half of both nights' set is a formidable pack of Jovi's great. The unusually angry new song, Hey God, Living on a Prayer, so early, You Give Love a Bad Name, Keep the Faith, and these days are all great songs showing the band at their peak. All downhill from there. On the Saturday, maybe, because Bon Jovi do lose some momentum, succumbing to over-lengthy version of songs like I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, and generally screwing around for their own pleasure. It should, however, be pointed out that no one else appears to be complaining. On the second night, though, Bon Jovi's steam any excess, is trimmed and the set uh, is a spotless corker. Perhaps with John Hill and their backs against the wall, the rest of the band play harder to compensate. Or perhaps it takes one night to regain their excellence after a break. Whatever, everyone from the crowd to the band to the stoked competition winners at the special stage side bars love them to death. Saturday concludes with This Ain't a Love Song, John singing the chorus in Spanish to the crowd's frenzied delight. On Sunday, the boy gives Better Roses the same treatment, before returning for a surprise encore of the excellent Slippery When Wet track, I'd Die For You. You might think John Bon Jovi's a canny con man with nothing left to say, but the grin on the front row kid's face when the singer makes sparkly eye contact couldn't be more real. That's the bottom line, and that's why Bon Jovi are the best commercial rock band breathing. We now come to this week's cover stars, Smashing Pumpkins in Dublin. Double or quits? Smashing Pumpkins nearly split up. Instead, they recorded a double album. It went to number one in the US. Paul Brannigan catches up with America's Most Wanted and asks them about grunge, drugs and fame over a spot of lunch. Gulp. The tumultuous applause ringing around the hall dies away as the lanky lead singer shuffles up to the microphone. A hush descends. He gazes stage left and addresses his guitarist with a solemn tone. Do you still believe in the power of rock, James? I still believe, Billy. I still believe. Smashing Pumpkins, fall about laughing and then steam headlong into another glorious, soaring slice of their stunning new album, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. The Pumpkins are back and it feels real good. Real powerful, real. You remember the Pumpkins, don't you? They strode out of Chicago in 1991, led by Billy Corgan and armed with a debut LP, Gish. It was crammed full of driving Sabbath riffs, gorgeous psychedelic dreamscapes and bruised beauty. On 1993, Siamese Dream, the guitars burned brighter, melodies as delicate as a spider's web and vocals throwing heart and soul to heaven. The Pumpkins one third of the grunge-born Holy Trinity alongside Nirvana and Pearl Jam. Of course you remember them. What other band would have the audacity to release a 28-track double album while the rest of the world is sharing a punk rock glue bag? Everyone keeps telling us how pretentious this album is without even hearing it, Billy laughs, Riley. Yet doing a double album is the most suicidal thing we could do at this point. We're certainly not sucking anybody's dick. We've earned the right to do whatever the fuck we want. Right now, all the pumpkins want to do is to have lunch. We're in Dublin's Shelbourne Hotel, and the band are in good spirits. Once orders have been placed for leek soup and vegetarian pasta dishes, we get down to business. The business of discussing how this double set has reached number one in the US and number four in the UK album charts. Although the band insist on being interviewed together, guitarist James Iyer, bassist Darcy and drummer Jimmy Chamberlain seem content to let their articulate frontman do most of the talking. This album has come pretty close to being the definitive Smashing Pumpkins album, Billy Begins. Maybe we were a better rock band in 1991 and a better psychedelic band in 1993, but overall, this is the best we can be as the Smashing Pumpkins as people know it. And the best the pumpkins can be is pretty fucking awesome. Melancholy is an exhilarating trip through the pumpkin's sonic palette, from the title track's poignant piano and strings intro through the schizophrenic metal of Fuck You and Ode to No One to the electronic dabblings of Lily. It's a varied twin set which is split in two. One of the albums is dubbed Dawn to Dusk, the second Twilight to Starlight. The original idea was to make the album like a soundtrack of a day and a night, Billy comments with a smile, but I kinda went away from that a bit. Obviously you don't go through 28 different emotions in one day. It's about life in a general sense. We felt we hadn't achieved certain things on Siamese Dream because of the situation at the time. So we tried to take up some of the threads that hadn't been explored fully. The situation, as Billy refers to it, almost saw the pumpkin split up during the recording of Siamese Dream. Billy thought the other three didn't give a shit about the band anymore. They thought Billy was being a dictatorial arsehole. Two years on, all four members look relaxed and happy in one another's company. They look like a proper band once more. James's quiet voice breaks the silence. Everyone always had their part to play. For anyone to say differently is really insulting. All eyes automatically shift to Billy. I was being really unfair to the band at that point, he admits. I was going through a very bitter, angry period. Billy pauses, runs his fingers distractedly through his hair and continues speaking carefully. Gish was very successful and we were thrown straight out on tour for a year and a half without a break. In that time, we had to learn how to deal with one another and get along then. Then we came to do the second album, it was post-Nirvana, and there was so much expectation on us to follow up their success. We were never a hit single type of band, but that's what everyone wanted us to be. Suddenly... There was the implication that we were some kind of dinosaurs. Billy shakes his head ruefully. Under those circumstances, I kind of flipped out because I couldn't handle the pressure and everything that was going on. In hindsight, I said and did things that were really hurtful and inappropriate. The room falls silent again. But that's history now, states Jimmy. The pumpkins in general, and Billy in particular, come across as very open and honest. But ask them to go into detail about their new record and you run into a brick wall. People can work it out for themselves. Once you explain songs, you get asked about that explanation 500 times, snaps Billy. Would you care to offer some insight into lyrics such as love is suicide bodies, God is empty just like me zero, or oh, despite all my rage, I'm still just a rat in a cage, bullet with butterfly wings. Could we get some more bread please? That's a no then. Billy smiles angelically. That's a no. Do you think you've been too honest in interviews in the past? Billy nods enthusiastically. Definitely, and all it's ever done is hurt us. We are constantly portrayed as this dysfunctional band, yet most bands operate in similar ways. I've grown out of being a dick, but I know plenty of stories about Kurt being a dick or Eddie being a dick. They just were smart enough not to let journalists know. We've paid for our naivety, but we've come out the other side. So now the pumpkins are guarded about certain things. They won't discuss Kurt's suicide or the subsequent behavior of Courtney Love or their own past. Billy's troubled upbringing is right off limits. What's sick is that my childhood was turned into a cartoon, he says bitterly. I won't demean my experiences by turning them into public fodder anymore. People think I created my past to sell records. But isn't that what people want from the rock stars in the 90s? Isn't this the decade for the fucked up and fragile? Billy snorts in disgust. It's more revolutionary to be yourself in a rock band than turn yourself into a fucking cartoon. The rock star guidebooks have already been written. We absolutely refuse to play rock star. We don't want to be anybody's heroes. But surely it's too late now. You already are a hero to millions. Of course, but I want those kids to know that the difference between them and us isn't that we're great. We're just fucking Midwestern kids who happen to have a good band. Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness has taken these Midwestern kids to the number one slot in the US. Nirvana and Pearl Jam both struggled to maintain their punk cred while operating in Pop's Premier League. But the Pumpkins never gave a toss about punk ethics. Billy always wanted the band to be bona fide rock legends. Now they are. If you're good, you deserve to have everything that comes with being good, Billy insists. Look at the bands that are out there now, he continues, becoming increasingly animated. Fucking crap like Bush and Radiohead. You can't tell us that we don't deserve to be more than that. Don't the pumpkins feel huge pressure to live up to their own lofty standards? Not anymore, Billy replies confidently. If people don't recognise us for what we are at this stage, there's nothing more we can do. If a double album isn't going to do it, if world tours aren't going to do it, then what else can we possibly do? We can't look any better, we can't be any cooler, because we are what we are. We fucking care, and if that's bad and unglamorous, I don't give two fucks. We haven't hid, we haven't got addicted to dope and sat drooling in the corner, we've kept working and kept fucking rocking. You know we're good, we make great albums, the people like us, and the end, that's all that matters. Well, isn't it? Gonna get it together, my bell. Like Ma Bell, I got the ill communication. Ma Bell got the ill communication. Feedback. The letter of the week this week begins. Having just seen the advert for the soon-to-be re-released Fishing for Lucky's mini-album, all I can say is East West Records. Why? It is a good idea to re-release this album for all the fans who missed out the first time. But have you seen the track listing? Obviously, the first six songs are all brilliant examples of the Wild Hearts at their best. But the other three. Why are they putting on a demo of a song which all self-respecting fans have already got? And two songs which are unreleased odds and ends? Surely you could ask the band for four or five new songs which would make the album worthwhile. It's not as if gingers run out of them. And what's happened to Lily's Garden being released as a single? East West, sort yourselves out before you piss one of the greatest bands this country has ever had up the wall. If The Cardiff Show was anything to go by, this band should be stars. James Salford from Barry. The new look of the mag is 100% improved. Disagree. It's even more colourful, bold and interesting to read. And the loss of all the exclamation marks is a distinct plus two. But I'm sorry to say that endless articles on Green Day, The Awful Offspring and Rancid just don't cut it. Also, what happened to the news on the mighty Poison Idea reformation that we were promised all those weeks back? And how about some pics of Poison Idea, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones and Gift? The Outlaw Scumfuck from Tipton. I know that FM are playing unplugged in London. Surely it's dangerous for persons of such an advanced age to be performing without the aid of their life support systems. Carl Kluid I'm writing to ask Kerrang! readers for help. As mentioned in Kerrang! 569, the only alternative rock radio station in London, XFM, has now ended its broadcast. This is a tragedy for rock music as once again it won't get any airplay on the radio. It just seems so fucking unfair that every other type of music gets played on radio, but alternative rock gets absolutely no recognition, especially when British rock music is now stronger than ever. So why shouldn't we get to hear the music we love? So here is my request to all Kerrang! readers. Let your support be known for XFM and heavy alternative rock by writing to the radio authority and asking them to give XFM a permanent license. It's only the price of a stamp. Rock fan, sorry. Gagging for a shagging. Sir Anthony Kiedis thinks Dave Navarro is a very sexy guy. I agree totally. Never mind the blood sugar and magic, the sex will be fine. Print a picky, please. The Walt Wonder, Warrington. I'm sick of people saying that Metallica have lost the edge that made them so popular in the late 80s, early 90s. You only have to listen to new tracks, Devil Dance and 2x4 to realise that there is another dimension to the greatest metal band ever. If you want to believe that Pantera and White Zombie are cool, then fuck off. Paul Shepard, Liverpool. My boyfriend and I have just come back from Nottingham after seeing the Wild Hearts at Roxy. The tickets came to £18. The petrol came to £20. The hotel we stayed in was £45 and we spent about £20 on food and drink. All I can say is that it was the best £103 we have ever spent. Lulu, Essex. How about giving away a free magnifying glass with the next issue of Kerrang! so that we can all read it without having to strain our eyes. Suzanne Bradford. P.S. More info on Carcass Please. Ill communication. Smooth, smart, selfish. How has therapy bassist Michael McKeegan kept his head as the band have gone from small-town heroes to international stars? Paul Elliott, here's his story. Top Geezers Therapy, they've sold a million records and played second on the bill at Donington, but success hasn't made wankers out of them. Frontman Andy Ken still goes to Chelsea on a Saturday afternoon to cheer on the blues, even though they're rubbish this year, as usual. And bassist Michael McKeegan is still the same easygoing bloke still listening to terrible old metal albums. Therapy have never tried to be cool. They just are. And maybe that's why they've done the business. They've sold tons of records without selling out. And to think that Michael McKeegan was on the dole five years ago. Where did it all go right? Do you remember the first bit of dosh you earned in therapy? Yes, we supported Riot at the Limelight in Belfast in 1989 and we got paid 50 quid. Being stupid, we'd promised a load of our mates that we'd get them in on the guest list and we couldn't. So that was 20 quid gone. Plus we had to pay 15 quid for petrol and guitar strings. We had just enough left over for a few beers. Andy Ken says he packed um, in a well-paid job to give his all to therapy. Did you make a similar sacrifice? No, I was on the dole. I wasn't giving up much. I was resitting A-levels when I joined the band and I didn't finish them. I've been doing all sorts of dull jobs, supermarkets. I used to mix paints in the paint shop too. I'd advise old ladies about colour schemes for their bathrooms. Beige and orange madame, that'll be lovely. Doll was 36 quid a fortnight. The housing office paid my rent. I lived in this terrible place with two students and two of us on the doll. Our landlord lived next door and drank lager all day. And a couple of doors down were the drug dealers. We'd get people knocking on the door in the middle of the night trying to buy drugs. And across the road, there was a squat full of smackhead crusties. It was a pit. We came home from a gig one night and there was a fire engine in the street. The drug dealers hadn't been keeping up with their protection money, so they'd had their house burnt down. Did you feel you were really on your way up when Therapy cut their first single? Yeah, it was on our own label, Multi-Fucking-National, a seven-inch with meat abstract and punishment kiss on it. We sounded so amazing in the studio, the heaviest thing you ever heard. Of course, I listen back to it now and it's terrible, all symbols, and the labels were the wrong way round, so nobody knew which songs were which. We recorded it pissed. Our producer Mud only turned up at the studio when the pubs chucked out. When you signed to a and did it feel like you'd made it big? Well, we had a weird situation getting off the old indie. The a and deal was on one minute, off the next, but they stuck by us. We signed a deal with them the day before we played with Colt at Finchby Park in June 1992. We opened up and L7 and Pearl Jam also played. It was great, playing in front of all those people. There must have been 20,000 people there, and our manager gave us 100 quid each on the day. That felt like the big time. of second album for AM TroubleGum sold the lottery tickets and made a pop star out of Andy Kent. Er, uh, sort of. How did you all survive the pressure of fame? We only do the things we want to do now. We turn down 80% of the stuff we're asked to do, so things don't really get out of hand. There are times when there's too many people around that's claustrophobic, but that doesn't happen too often. I've just realized, that there are certain things that I can't do anymore, like go out front and watch a support band. Sometimes you can't even watch a band from the side of the stage because people see you there and it's not fair on the other band. That happened to us recently at a South American festival. While we were playing, the crowd just started chanting, Sepultura, Sepultura. We couldn't understand why until we saw Sepultura's drummer watching us from the side of the stage. Obviously, it's not so bad for a band who support us. No one's gonna start shouting, Michael McKegan, Michael McKegan and he gets people going, there's that bloke from therapy. But that's because he's the singer. What did you buy with your first royalty check? My stereo. And I bought a six string guitar, a flying V. Nope, it was shaped like a scorpion. Nope, actually, it's a nice black one, like Andy's. I've envied his guitar for some time. Are you cautious with money? Yes, because I remember having fuck all money, so I appreciate it. It was only four years ago when I had nothing at all. So, what is the secret of therapy's success, Michael? We're into what we're doing, we're very selfish, we please ourselves. We'd never go on stage and do a song we don't want to do. How many bands can say that? Singles. And the singles this week are reviewed by Paul Elliott. The first single reviewed is Lie To Me by Bon Jovi. This one gets 3Ks. People said Bon Jovi were finished a couple of years ago. A lot of people are eating their words right now. There are hits all over Bon Jovi's These Days album. This is the third. It'll go top 10, no problem. Lighter Me is the archetypal Bon Jovi ballad. Just the way the punters like it. It's quality stuff. It's a bit of a Bruce Springsteen ripoff. No surprises there. For All the Cows by Foo Fighters. This one gets 3Ks. If Dave Grohl really wanted a hit, he'd be pushing Big Me as the new Foo Fighters single. Big Me is two minutes of pure pop. By comparison, For All the Cows is a bit of a dirge. It starts off sweetly enough but when they rock out on this one, the Foo Fighters sound strangely sluggish. Probably the weakest track on the best album of 1995. Frontline Assembly with their single Circuitry. This gets 3Ks. Superior industrial techno noise from the seminal Canadian duo. Precursors to Nine Inch Nails Ministry et al. Includes a gorgeous ambient mix of circuitry and a bit of interactive CD-ROM action for clever bastards. Joyrider with their single, Fabulé. This gets 4Ks. Jesus, what a rush. Fabulé hits you like the Foo Fighters or Therapy's headiest stuff. Yes, Joyrider are that good. In fact, this eats the Foo Fighters new single for breakfast. The single of the week this week is Invasion What Really Turned You On by Pillbox. This gets 4Ks. Pillbox are a trio from LA fronted by Susan Hyatt, who sings and plays guitar, writes a song, sticks her tongue out in the band's publicity photos and scores extra cool points for being born in, yes, Seattle. Pillbox have been likened to the Pixies pre-grunge 80s shouty people and Patty Smith, but on the evidence of these three tracks, they're more like the Foo Fighters and early Blondie. Whatever, Pillbox are cool and Susan Hyatt is a star in waiting. Get ready for those Hyatt girl headlines. The last word. The ultimate questions on life, sex and death. This week, Nick Holmes of Paradise Lost faces Sylvie Simmons. Last time you felt guilty or ashamed? Quite recently actually. I purchased an obscene video in Denmark yesterday and it's absolutely hideous. We all watched it on the bus but most of us left because we were going to throw up. I actually said, I feel ashamed. Last album you bought? War of the Worlds. I didn't actually buy it. I swapped it for a load of old albums. I used to love it when I was a kid. I used to skive off school just so I could listen to it. But when I listen to it now, it's a bit naff. Naff, but brilliant. Last sexual fantasy. I don't think about things like that. I think about War of the Worlds. I guess my fantasies are just the usual ones most blokes have. I like dwarves covered in chocolate. Actually, at my age, I've fulfilled most of mine. Last time you smiled. I smile all the time. I don't know where I got this reputation for not smiling. I suppose it's just my cynical attitude, really. I'm not that serious. I'm just ironic. I like a laugh like everybody else. Last time you had a fight with a member of your band? We don't fight, ever. I've had a few near misses, just general shouting but never any fisticuffs. Mostly it's disagreements about what music we'll have on the stereo. More than some other things you'd think would be really important. The last time I fought anyone was when I punched a guy in our local nightclub about a year ago. He was just invading my space and squaring up to me, so I just kind of smacked him. It was a really good punch actually. I was very lucky. I'm a crap fighter and I apologise later. If he had seen it coming, he probably would have killed me. Last time you got completely legless. Two nights ago in Germany. We had a day off so we just went to a bar and got arsehole and then went back to the bus and had lots of tins of skull, super strength, which was a really silly thing to do. I was terminally ill the next day. Last time you're in love. When I looked in the mirror this morning. Last thing that really pissed you off. I found the bed I slept on last night highly irritating. It was like a prison bed, small and hard, but I can find something wrong with anything if I think about it for a few minutes. Last time you were skint. I say I'm skint all the time, but it's just an expression to get out of having to buy people drinks. I've never really been skint. The last time I was genuinely broke was when I was about 14. I've always been pretty frugal. I've always saved money ever since I was a kid, and I've never really overspent. I never really had a proper job either. The band turned professional about a year after I got out of college. I did want to do washing up in a restaurant, though. Horrible. Last person on earth you'd want as a friend. I can think of hundreds of people, but I don't want to get smacked. That fucking singer with Blur, I can't stand him. He's too cool for his own good. Trying to be so anti-rock star that he just completely becomes one. I saw him at the Phoenix Festival. I suppose I could have said Axel Rose, but that goes without saying. Last time you phoned home. My mum and dad. I mean, I don't live with them, but I phone them about once every three weeks. Last person you fancied. You see good-looking people all the time i don't want to be predictable and go with a pack and name all the usual supermodels i was watching the nature program the other night with danny bear who used to do the word and i actually commented on how beautiful she is she's a good percentage of what i would like in a perfect woman last time you played the last time about two days ago at rehearsals that song came from a period when i used to get really uptight about everyday normal situations i was probably having a nervous breakdown and i used to freak out and stuff I don't have anything like that nowadays. It was just one of those things. A bad patch. Basically, that's what that song's about. The last time you had sex. Just under a week ago before I left for the tour with my girlfriend. How long can you last? If I've been drinking all night. Otherwise, as long as I need to, really. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record that's so heavy you couldn't get off the turntable. Albums and the album of the week this week is Corn by Corn. Reviewed by Jason Arnott, this one gets 4ks. Awesome, killer, cool, and fucking amazing are just four of the expressions used by machine head man Rob Flynn to describe Corn. Months back, the man shouted their praises at anyone within 10 miles. After a delay, which will probably only add to the band's cult stature, the UK finally gets to hear the calls of Flynn's frantic fits. Basically, if you like Pantera, Rage Against Machine, Prong and on Nine Inch Nails, then you've probably established common ground with Korn. Their intoxicatingly dark noise takes cues from all of these bands. It's a damaging combination from Pantera and Prong. These Californians take the odd riff and the general aggression. From Rage, they appear to have learnt the art of great dynamics to suddenly take the pace down low, then bring it back up and detonate it in the listener's face. See the blistering faggot, where singer Jonathan Davis roars, All My Life, Who Am I? His voice overflows with cracked, frustrated emotion, often lapsing into uncontrollable screams like a mental ward regular, and this is where the Trent Reznor comparison rears its head. You can almost see the veins throbbing on the man's forehead. There are personal demons here that wouldn't look out of place in the evil dead. Davis does, however, vary his approach depending on how psychotic, neurotic, anything ending in otic he's feeling at the time. Sometimes he tears for a twisted rap, sometimes he adopts a subtle aching moan, other times he just shouts his bollocks off but whatever he's doing it sounds painful corn have also injected their own special insanity into the music crafting a horribly sleazy guitar sound that matches their bleak outlook on life at points it's hard to tell which is a guitar and which is a bass sickeningly down-tuned riffs are then hooked with bizarre squills of guitar noise sounding like nothing other than kittens in a microwave if primus became deranged serial killers they might sound like corn Blind, the album's opener, will surely become Korn's equivalent of Rage Against the Machine's signature hit Killing in the Name, introducing us perfectly to the band's quirkily bruising ways. It's a textbook example of build and release rock. A light hi-hat rhythm gets rhythmically stabbed by a guitar scrape before exploding into one of the year's most bass-heavy riffs. Korn may occasionally waver below this high standard over the course of its 65 minutes, but then this is just the beginning. There are five new freaks on the block. The next album reviewed this week is Hardwired by Frontline Assembly, reviewed by Liam Shiles, this gets 3Ks. The world is being eaten by technology apparently, soon everyone will be a barcode, and all our central nervous systems will be connected by the internet. Those that resist will be considered luddites and dangerous. With their synergy of crunching guitars and computer generated soundscapes, Frontline Assembly are supplying the soundtrack to this consumption. Boys and girls with guitars and a song in their heads are relics of a redundant culture. At its best, industrial music can provide interesting foundations and superstructures upon and around which people like Stabbing Westwood and the Connelline Crush can construct their songs. At its worst, it's soulless, humorless, pointless, electro-doodling from and for people who know everything about bikes, ROMs and interfaces and bugger all about rock and roll. Today industrial music is at crisis point, Fetus is officially crap and it's looking increasingly less likely that Reznor will ever write a song again, at least Kraftwerk had the decency to ring the odd tune out of the techno babble. What Reese Fulbert and Bill Lieb have given us here is a supremely accomplished, impressively realised soundtrack for the ultimate console game. Or the most outrageous manga fantasy nightmare, only the single cut circuitry, available as a CD-ROM naturally, has anything approaching a chorus and you wouldn't exactly call it a toe tapper. There isn't even much crunching guitar on Hardwired. It's mostly a pop puree of abstract electronics designed we may imagine to prove that frontline assembly are at the very shittest and hottest part of the white heat of technology. Great if you like that sort of thing. For those who don't, Hardwired is mood music for Room 101. Big Brother would definitely approve. Next up we have Fast Stories from Kid Coma by Truly. Reviewed by Claire Douse, she gives this one 5Ks. Imagine Monster Magnet's space trip blending with the bombast of Led Zeppelin riffed up by Soundgarden, sung by Jim Morrison, stuffed into Caius's pipe and smoked by everyone. You've imagined fast stories from Kid Coma, the colossal new LP from Seattle trio, Truly. With Hiro Yamamoto, ex-Soundgarden bassist and former Screaming Trees drummer Mark Pickerel making up two thirds of the lineup, you know you're in for something special. But Truly's debut LP exceeds all expectations. For a full 72 minutes you're encased in a pumped up, tripped out, monstrously heavy album. As third track, If You Don't Let It Die, thunders towards its sweetly crafted chorus you're already hooked. Truly effortlessly handle the epic and complex without descending into pretension. It's all held together by the torturous twists of Robert Roth's voice as on Blue Light, his guitar unashamedly rich and retro and drenched in feedback. The LP climaxes with Hurricane Dance, an eight-minute rush that sounds like a juggernaut about to run you down. Courtesy of Pickerel, who's playing throughout, is exceptional and feels like a night in an opium den. Tumbling after is an embarrassment of riches, like the keyboard sway virtually and the heavyweight strangling. In the last 12 months, only Smashing Pumpkins have made a rock album that sounds so immense, but also unbelievably Capitol Records currently have no fully confirmed plans for the release of the Truly LP in the UK. What a fucking travesty. Next up we have a couple of albums from the In Brief section. So the first one is Troops of Tomorrow by The Exploited and this gets 5Ks. This one is reviewed by uh, Morat I think. Classic Exploited from when Slayer called their highly rated covers for 1993's Judgement Night album, War, UK82 and Disorder. 13 years after its initial release Troops of Tomorrow still wipes the floor with so many so called punk bands of today and makes for essential listening. Though the vinyl sounds heavier for some reason if you can track it down. Next up we have Second LP by Sunny Day Real Estate. Reviewed by Paul Rees, he gives this one 1k. Seattle's Sunny Day Real Estate are worthy of interest only because Dave Grohl recruited bassist Nate Mandel and drummer William Goldsmith for Foo Fighters. As the posthumous Second LP demonstrates, the quartet wouldn't have merited so much as a bored yawn if they continued their fey bargain basement smashing pumpkins impersonations till doomsday. I'm gonna go ahead and disagree with that review entirely. Uh, that album by Sunny Day Real Estate is a modern classic and Paul Rees in 1995, maybe different now, has no clue what he's talking about. Next week in Kerrang! Back Issues. Backstage with Bon Jovi. Behind closed doors with the world's biggest band. Scratch cards, are you the winner this week? Foo Fighters Britain's Most Wanted. Soul Asylum, how much is Dave Perna really worth? The Wild Hearts, Ginger's Last Words, Vote in the Kerrang Readers Poll, Skid Row, Inside Sebastian's Rock and Roll Circus and Corn Harvesters of Sorrow. Thank you so much for listening, if you would like to leave us a review on Apple Music or Spotify that would be great and we will be back next Wednesday as usual, I look forward to talking to all them, so have a good week, bye for now.